What's going on? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. It is heard live every day from noon to three on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content like invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with all the links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And again, thank you so much for your support. Uh, Street takeovers. I didn't know this was a term. I, apparently we're going with this is the term street takeovers where as the uh, Charlotte observer describes it dozens of drivers block off city streets to race each other and perform tricks like burnouts that spinning trick that makes tires smoke burnouts it's happening all across the city apparently CMPD did a news conference yesterday about it and they said they're going to be, you know, looking to increase enforcement. They gave out 54 citations. They arrested five people. They towed or seized 12 vehicles as evidence this month alone. This past weekend, there were eight of these prearranged races and 13 pop-up takeovers. So, let's see. Eight and 13 is uh, carry the 12. Yeah, like what? That's like 21 across 11 CMPD divisions. Hundreds of drivers involved. I saw one of them was what uptown over at the uh, NASCAR Hall of Fame right over there. Glad we moved out of uptown. (laughs) Christy and I had Christy and I lived in an apartment um, in uptown two years, I guess, for about two years. And, yeah, I'm I'm glad we're not there. That would have been right outside of our, uh, well, well, half a block away. But still, it's obnoxious. I wonder, like, do the people who are involved in these things, do they realize how obnoxious they are? Do you not realize that, guys? It's obnoxious. It's annoying. You're, you're being annoying. <laughs> it's, it's disrespectful to other people. It is because you're you're doing these burnouts. You're causing all this uh, all this uh, uh, noise at what three in the morning, two in the morning, right? All hours of the night. It's inconsiderate. Do you got? I guess they don't care, right? I guess that's the thing. They just don't care about anybody else other than themselves. Got to get the clicks and likes because apparently that's. That's what CMPD says. This is all social media driven. I'm starting to think social media was a mistake. I'm starting I'm starting to get there. But with the, the studies that we covered last week with the uh, anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts among teenaged girls when they get on Instagram, even when people aren't on the gram, if all their friends are on it, they still suffer from these things. So I'm starting to, I'm starting to think we might need to uh, dial it back a little bit. I mean, everybody else, not me. Um, I don't have a problem. I can quit anytime I want. Policing those who participate in these street takeovers is particularly difficult because officers cannot quickly identify the drivers of the vehicles because they're all wearing masks for, you know, safety for COVID, obviously. The drivers of the vehicles are not often the owners of the vehicles. Oh, well. Tow it. Impound it. Keep it. Yeah, like in these circumstances, like I'm usually not a big fan of the asset forfeiture laws and stuff. Actually not a fan of them really at all. But in this case, 
I am willing to make an exception <laughs> in these cases. Yeah, if uh, if you're doing burnouts in the middle of an intersection at 3 in the morning in front of people's homes and cops catch you there, I don't care whose car it is. I say impound it. Turn it into an undercover police car. Have it. Give it to the city. Let them auction it off or something. I'm all right with that. Um, drivers are not often the owners of the vehicles, which can lack proper registration, and the plates are sometimes removed or switched with another vehicle. Yeah, like Fast and Furious. Not the gun running operation that the Obama administration was running, but uh, the movies. The drivers rarely, if ever, stop. Right? When the cops come up, they just, the drivers flee. They drive away. And they know that CMPD's pursuit policy won't allow them to pursue them. So they get away. So they're not going to get caught unless they're stupid or unless they, you know, wreck the vehicle on the way out of the the scene, but all you got to do is just zoom away and just be willing to drive really, really fast for a short period of time so you can get away from the cops, I guess. Um, It's for safety. Reckless and, I mean, the policy, the pursuit policy, it's for safety. Reckless and aggressive driving does not meet the threshold that CMPD has to pursue. So they, they know this. They can just drive away. It's almost as if People intent on breaking the laws know what the law is, and they know how to break it in such a way so as to get away with breaking the law. It's almost as if. If I didn't know any better, I would suggest that that might be happening here, but I'm not sure. Um, This is a nationwide trend, apparently, and it started, the increase started during COVID. Yeah, you had empty streets. Everybody was staying home to bend the curve, right? Some of these organizers are juveniles. Once again, knowing that they're not going to be charged as adults. CMPD says that uh, the General Assembly and the Charlotte City Council need to work towards legislation that would assist them in enforcing laws against racing and street takeovers. Work towards legislation that would assist them in enforcing laws. So wait, are there laws already on the books? So apparently, yes, what CMPD is interested in is tougher penalties. (gasps) I believe that's racism. I don't know. That's just what I've heard in all the discussions. Like tougher penalties means you're racist and you're like part of the white supremacist society, the systemic racism stuff. Yeah. Some jurisdictions in North Carolina have strict penalties for street racing, including $1,000 fines and an automatic six-month seizure of the vehicle if a driver is convicted. I like it. Take the vehicle. If convicted, if convicted, take the vehicle. So they want to see something similar here. Okay, I'm down with that. Um, but I don't know if it's happening all over the country. Is it happening in places with stiffer penalties? How exactly are you going to catch these people? Because if you increase the penalties, but you still don't pursue them, Right? They're still going to flee. And if the penalties are stiffer, they have even more reason to flee. I wonder if it has anything to do with, uh, with staffing as well. I think we are in actually a cycle. I, I, it, it is a cycle that we are in. I don't know how to get out of it. Heather McDonald wrote a piece about this over at uh, City Journal a couple of days ago, 
it was she was talking about what killed Tyree Nichols, the man that was beaten to death by those five cops in Memphis. And she says that U.S. policing is in a death spiral. And it will remain in this cycle if we continue to portray uh, police brutality as racism. What does she mean by this? She says that the this vicious circle of rising crime and then a flight from the profession, that, that's the cycle. And it's going to accelerate. It's already bad, but it's going to get worse. Like she asks in the Tyree Nichols case, did the cops possess the tactical skill and psychological disposition to conduct any high-risk car stop according to professional standards? And given what is shown in the videos, the answer is obviously no, right? She also points out, remember, because the five officers that beat Nichols to death, they were all black. And of course, the, the people who see everything as systemically racist on the left Right? They, of course, called this the manifestation of anti-black, black racism. And that these cops had internalized this systemically racist, white supremacist cop culture. Conservatives, she said, reflexively seized on the black officer's race in order to point out, like, that's silly. But here's the problem with doing so is that if you... If you point to the race of the cops and say, well, they're black, so how could they be manifesting any kind of, you know, anti-black racism? You're kind of legitimating the view that the officer's race in the first place is a valid presumption of bias when you have an encounter with law enforcement. Right. So if you say, well, look, it is race is black, so it's not racism. But you're also then kind of without saying so, but you're lending credibility to this idea that if he was a white cop, then it would be racist related. So she advises against that. It's not the proper line of argument to take on this. Either Memphis police training is grossly inadequate or these particular officers were not capable of processing it. It, it, The beating was not a product of racism. It is the tragic culmination of the very narrative being offered to explain that beating. The idea that policing is racist has led to a manpower loss. It has led to a lowering of standards. It has led to a drop in proactive enforcement. The resulting increase in crime then puts more downward pressure on hiring standards because you're trying to replenish your ranks that are depleted. And then you can't compensate for the attrition rates. So the departments are left with enough well, uh, with not enough uh, well-trained sergeants and lieutenants to supervise officers who maybe never should have been hired in the first place. Since 2014, Black Lives Matter agitation has decimated police ranks and driven away potential applicants who do not want to be presumed racist from the first day on the job. I don't know the solution here. Heather McDonald writing at City Journal, and she's done a lot of research on uh, and coverage. She is the uh, Uh, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal, the author of When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives, now available for pre-order. And so this piece is called What Killed Tyree Nichols. It's at cityjournal.org. And she says the idea that is causing this death spiral in policing, this death cycle 
in policing, which is nobody wants to do the job anymore. People are retiring. They can't get enough people. So they uh, or they're resigning or retiring or quitting, whatever. And, and they're not replenishing the ranks, which, of course, then drives crime higher. This idea that policing is racist has led to manpower loss, a lowering of standards, because now you got to take anybody because you can't hire people. And you have a drop in proactive enforcement. The Memphis Police Department regularly requested permission from the police licensing board to hire rookies with felony and misdemeanor convictions. We're hiring police officers with convictions, with felony convictions. In Memphis, crime soared. In 2020 and 2021, they saw record levels of killings. Memphis has the highest violent crime rate in America. It ranks ninth in homicides per capita. Reckless driving also spiked, providing an additional impetus for the creation of the Specialized Enforcement Unit, where the five cops that beat Tyree Nichols to death, where they were assigned, where they worked. But across the country, even as the political stigma against police poisons recruiting, the pressure to align police demographics with the local demographics remains unrelenting. Justice Department official, uh, third highest ranking uh, under Obama, I believe, uh, head of the Civil Rights Division, Vanita Gupta. She said, quote, we have all been promoting police officers that will reflect the communities that they serve. Such diversity hiring, McDonald writes, is in part a response to the recognition, quote unquote, of what Gupta calls racial bias in our criminal justice system. And one of the alleged sources of bias is hiring criteria that has a disparate impact on blacks. Disparate impact. You know what this is, right? Disparate impact. It is used to justify all manners of discrimination, ostensibly to combat discrimination. When you can't prove discrimination actually occurred, it's it has become a heuristic. It's it's a it's just a signal. They say, oh, we see that. Uh, let's say you know in a in a population, it's uh, let's say you know it's thirty three percent white, thirty three percent Hispanic, thirty three percent black. Therefore, the police department needs to have. 33% white and black and Hispanic candidates or cops, right, that make it through the academy. And if you're not seeing, uh, you know, a third as proportionate to their population in the general community, you if you're not seeing that, well, that means racism. That is a disparate impact. The disparate impact thinking is the second cause of watered-down hiring standards. It's got a long history. In 1990, a federal consent decree required the Philadelphia Police Department to stop ranking applicants based on their performance on the police hiring exam. That exam was presumptively racist since whites passed it at a rate of like four times that of the black candidates. The possibility that black candidates on average lacked the requisite academic skills to pass the exam was outside the realm of allowable thinking. The consent decree mandated that the department admit blacks based on their numbers in the applicant pool, not on their test results. And then they proceeded to have a series of misconduct scandals. <laughs> That's not racial. That was just lowering of standards. I suspect we're going to start seeing a lot more of this kind of thing because you've, you're now allowing people with felony convictions to become cops. 
shortages lead to more downward pressure on the qualifications. If you don't get enough applicants, you got to lower the standards even further. And Vanita Gupta may believe that officers should reflect the communities they serve, but if such racial proportionality is achieved at the expense of competence, then that doesn't serve those communities. You're not helping that community. An Obama-era report on the Philadelphia Police Department found that black and Hispanic officers were actually more likely than white officers to shoot an unarmed black man based on threat perception failure, mistaking a cell phone for a gun, let's say. More departments are getting rid of the requirement of clean criminal records, among other expectations, driven by the twin imperatives of getting more recruits and getting more minority recruits. And look, this is I've said this from the, from the beginning when all of the... Uh, Black Lives Matter stuff started coming out. I said, I, like, I don't know how you correct this except by getting more members of minority communities into police departments. But that, like, that was a voluntary thing. That was a, hey, we should strive for this. We should promote this. You should tell your kids being a cop is noble and you should go to work and work and serve in this community. Like, that's the way you do it. It was not, hey, let's, you know, lower all the standards so anybody can get the gig. That's, that's not going to serve those communities well at all. Got a message from a law enforcement uh, officer who suggested uh, what send, uh, send people who wish to be police officers but have the, uh, the criminal background, send them into the military first and see if they can hack it there, follow orders, and then you get out of the military and then, yeah, and judges have done that, right, over... Well, probably from the very beginning, you know, go to the military or go to jail, that old thing. <laughs> so I, I, I am all for a rehabilitation story. I am like I people who make mistakes, get arrested, get convicted, even there, you know, they can you know repay their debt to society, so to speak. And if they actually have a turnaround in their life, then that is a good thing. That's a net positive for the society. So I'm OK with you know, reentry programs and that sort of thing, and people trying to help folks getting back into the society and, and readjusting and learning skills, all of that. That's all great. Military, fine. I just don't think you go from like, hey, I had a felony conviction. I don't know what felony conviction, like which crimes would still be, you know, you get the you get the felony conviction for a certain crime, like what? Car theft or something? You could be a cop with that on your record or... Like, how, how serious are these crimes that these guys were convicted of that then got onto the Memphis police force? Um, but then again, there may be some value to that, right? You get, you get cops that know how the criminal world operates. <laughs> right? There might be some benefit. Um, an insufficient number of officers means more crime. I don't know who needs to hear this. But I'll say it again, Heather McDonald writing at City Journal, an insufficient number of officers means more crime. Those officers remaining on a force will be less likely to intervene in suspicious behavior. They know that if an interaction turns violent, backup may be slow to arrive. I got a friend. I saw him this weekend. Both he and his wife are former law enforcement. And uh, I was chatting with them and... At one point, I said to him, like, you seem a lot lighter, like you're his mood. And he says, I have heard that so many times. 
he didn't know right how how tightly wound he was because he was just in it, you know? And then once he got out of it, it was like his whole like he like I, I got to see him, which was nice. He's a, he's a great guy. Um He's, you know, funnier. I mean, he's just funnier than I remembered him being. It's like he was lighter. I don't know how else to describe it. He's just his mood was lighter. Potential criminals will more likely uh, will be more likely to break the law as the risk of being stopped or arrested decreases. Right. This makes sense to most logical people that if uh, you can do burnouts and street racing and never get caught, never suffer any kind of ramifications, you're you're probably going to keep doing it. The crime rising, existing officers uh, will have to work longer hours without time off, without enough rest. That then increases the possibility that they make mistakes. Threat misperception, right? Without, uh, without sufficient backup, an officer confronting a resisting suspect may be more inclined to escalate his own use of force beyond what appears justified to civilian observers starting the anti-cop cycle all over again. Yet with crime rising, the political pressure to hire more cops by any means goes up in tandem. They're tied together. Rising crime, political pressure goes up, hire more cops by any means necessary. Meanwhile, the tactical toolkit is shrinking. The call to reduce car stops is being renewed, right? Look at our own sheriff here, Mecklenburg County. Directing his deputies, don't pull over anybody for, you know, equipment problems. Expired tags, don't worry about it. Broken taillight, don't worry about it. Asheville did this a couple years ago. Asheville moved to this kind of a system years ago. You know what's happening in Asheville right now? Yeah, their downtown is in serious uh, serious trouble. They have serious problems now. They don't. You walk around downtown Asheville, you don't even see a cop, which is weird because that's where the police department is. You don't even see them. There, there aren't any there. I got a story on this. They, all of a sudden, people are waking up to the problems in downtown Asheville, which I was warning was happening to the city when I got there. I could see it happening in 2012. The decline in these types of stops after the... Uh, St. George Floyd riots already led to a massive increase in fatal car crashes. Did you know that? Especially in high crime minority areas. These things, again, the people that are that the, the people that are supposedly, you know, being uh, that are the subjects of the protection. Right. This is the, the idea that the Black Lives Matter folks are championing a group of people, namely Black Americans. And saying that we need to abolish policing because it's racist. Get rid of it all. Get rid of the car stops. And all of their prescriptions are harming the very people that they claim to be wanting to help. We do know that police training across the country is inadequate, she says. The initial academy period is comparatively brief. Once on the job, officers receive only the most perfunctory refreshers and tactics. They desperately need more practice in de-escalation and stress control. But even a day of in-service training takes officers off the streets at a time when force levels are already dangerously low. So the pressure is on to limit such training. In the wake of the Nichols death in Memphis, expect more implicit bias and cultural competence training. 
which drains precious time and resources from subjects that actually help officers perform. The only thing that's going to get policing out of this death spiral is the widespread repudiation of this racism narrative. It is not racism that brings officers into more frequent contact with minorities. It is exceedingly high rates of crime in minority communities that does that. There was an Asheville City Councilman, um, Vijay Singh, I believe his name was, Democrat, Asheville City Council member, essentially run out of town. He They moved. He resigned as a city councilman and moved because of the backlash, well, and also a job offer, but the backlash that he got from the progressive Moonbat Brigade that infects that entire city. And all he did was suggest that maybe the police are making more stops in these areas because this is where the crime is. <gasps> it's not the police who are responsible for the fact that blacks between the ages of 10 and 24 die of gun homicide at 25 times the rate of whites in that age bracket. That's not, that's not police systemic racism. Those black victims are shot almost exclusively by black criminals. I've talked about this in, uh, repeatedly for decades now. The vast majority of violent crime, almost all of it occurs, first off, you're more likely to be killed by somebody you know, but it's all intra-racial, white on white, black on black, Hispanic on Hispanic. We kill within our own racial demographics. In 2022, you know how many unarmed Black Americans were fatally shot by police officers? Seven. Out of a national homicide death toll for blacks that will likely exceed 10,000. I don't know. I mean, it's more than Hispanic. It's more than whites combined. And it gets no attention from mainstream media, Black Lives Matter activists, right? Because the assailants are not cops. And the cops aren't white. Departments across the country must urgently review their training and hiring standards to ensure that another abomination like the fatal torture of Tyree Nichols does not reoccur. But they will be less able to provide the protection that law-abiding residents of high-crime communities need and deserve. So long as the president and academia and the media insist that police are the embodiment of America's allegedly lingering white supremacy. We have to disabuse ourselves of this idea. It has to be met with repudiation. So this is me doing that. Alrighty, so along the lines of this policing uh, death cycle here, there was a big write-up. Apparently it's the first part of a multi-part series over at the Asheville Watchdog, uh, Watchdog.org website. This is a... Uh, it's a bunch of uh, retired newspaper people. They all, amazingly, coincidentally enough, all found themselves at the same dinner party in Asheville. And they're like, hey, we're all retired. we got some time. So they started their own nonprofit news thing. And so, um, and they sell subscriptions and all of that. And look, I'm, I'm all for more, um, uh, more content creators. But anyway, they're, they're of the left. So I did see they hired away a guy named John Boyle, who was a longtime employee of the uh, Asheville Citizen Times newspaper there. Uh, anyway, so they did this, the first part in what they call is going to be a, a lengthier series. This thing is like eight pages. 
And they went around and talked to these business owners in downtown Asheville. And you'll never guess what happened after the George Floyd protests and they started their whole big depolicing uh, effort. Because they went all in. The Asheville, uh, the Asheville City Council is beholden to the Moonbat left-wing progressive LARPing anarchist base because of the way they structure their elections. This is why I keep warning people what's coming in Charlotte as they're getting ready to uh, put this up to voters. You're going to end up with this same sort of dynamic occurring. Because the, it doesn't matter. So I'm not, I've already discussed it on that topic. Let me just focus on this piece here because it's on the police aspect here. They went around basically and interviewed, what is it, like three dozen, uh, yeah, three dozen merchants in um, downtown. Employees, business owners, even residents. Uh, many expressed sympathy and compassion for the transients often at the center of the problems, but nearly all of them said, with mixtures of sorrow and anger, that the city's downtown district is in decline. Later on in the piece, they talk about police being so hard to find. Businesses interviewed by the Asheville Watchdog overwhelmingly pointed to a decline in police presence as a major factor in the perception of downtown as less safe. The APD is down 40% of its force. 40%. The department, like others across the country, saw an exodus of cops that started with the 2020 protests against police brutality following the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis policemen. As its resources shrank, the Asheville Police Department closed its downtown substation. And the number of officers patrolling downtown each shift, you know know how many are on on the beat out there right now? Two. Asheville is the size of Rock Hill, population-wise. That's its formal population. On weekends and, uh, and in the evenings, it could be three times that. It's huge. With the tourists, uh, when, when uh, uh, events come to town or you know concerts and the like, festivals, weekends are huge. It's only like 90,000 people, though. They got two cops on foot walking around. Oh, and they also have to cover Biltmore Village, <laughs> which is which is a couple miles down the road. And so the merchants were like, don't bother calling the cops. And what they document in this uh, story, and this is, look, I heard all of this from people in downtown. Here's what's happening. The locals don't go anymore. I hear the same thing in Charlotte now, too. The locals don't want to come. Charlotte or uh, Asheville has the tourists that come in, and then, of course, they start to see what's going on, and now you're getting these uh, reviews. People are writing on, you know, TripAdvisor or Expedia, whatever, on their Airbnb, and they're and they're documenting what they're seeing. And I'm not going to be too graphic here, but people exposing themselves to others, having to walk through human waste, increased shoplifting, aggressive behavior. One said. Uh, Outside of their store, they have found human feces, blood, adult diapers, food. One time they got trapped inside their store because people slept in front of the doorway and they couldn't, they were inside their their store and they couldn't get out. Overdoses in bathrooms, assaults. One day a guy chased me with a knife, said one employee. One had their car stolen. One had his car attacked with some by some maniac with a crowbar. Um... Drug overdoses, you say that. 
vagrants they're just sleeping in this uh in the doorways all over the place uh oh a fire got set in front of one business and then it was extinguished with urine windows broken graffiti yeah just this whole host of culturally enriching behavior that is Asheville downtown Asheville and the businesses now People are arming themselves. They they will not allow their employees to go to their cars after work alone, so they have to pair up when they leave the building together. Right? People are walking around with their mace and one one woman was like, I carry a machete with me when she goes back and forth to her car from work. This is what depolicing looks like. Give it up, Asheville. Good job. Good job. Thank <laughs> you.